Hello there. This is the Africa Climate Conversations podcast. I'm your host, Sophie Mbogwa. Now, today being a Thursday, it's the day we discuss the financing change series, but today the series comes to an end. I'm hoping that you did enjoy the series much like I did, but please visit www.africaclimateconversations.com to listen to the episodes and more other series. Now, your feedback is always, always welcome, so do feel free to leave us a comment or send us an email using info at africaclimateconversations.com and thank you so, so much to all of you who have been sending us feedback. Now, the eight-part financing change in Africa series was made possible by a collaboration between the African Development Bank, the Climate Investment Funds, and the Africa Climate Conversations. To wrap up this series, today we look at the importance of engaging all stakeholders on the ground for an adaptation project success. From 2014, the Strategic Climate Fund under the Climate Investment Fund funded the Strengthening Climate Resilience Project in the Kafuesa Basin in Zambia. Engineer Indi Dinala, the project manager, told me that the farmers in the Kafuesa Basin would depend on wild fruits and wild tubers during drought. But today, the 38 million US dollar project have introduced, among other measures, solar-powered irrigation projects that have enabled farmers to farm even during drought seasons. In addition, a climate-proofed road was built to enable private sector to reach out and buy farm products from the communities farms. This not only created resilience but also improved nutrition and livelihood. Here is Engineer Dinala. My name is Indy Dinala, mm-hmm. engineer. Mm-hmm. I'm um, the project manager for uh, strengthening climate resilience in the Kafir Sub Basin um, project implemented here in Zambia. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Let, let's start basically understanding what the Strengthening Climate Resilience in the Kafue Sub-Basin project is all about. But I think before we gather, I think it's good to have a backgrounder uh, for someone who's listening to us to basically understand when you're talking about the Kafue Sub-Basin area, in terms of climate, what are the major challenges that actually probably informed this particular project? Okay, so the Kafue Sub-Basin um, of course, under PPCR, together with the Barose uh, sub-basin, was among uh, the most exposed to climate extremes, uh, which increased the vulnerability of the populations that lived in the, in the sub-basin. So before the Skrika project, uh, households in the Kafue sub-basin coped with... Um, increased frequency in um, uh, uh, frequency and intensity of floods and droughts. They coped through reduced meal quantities, like meal portions, or shifting to a vegetable-only um, kind of diet, or even in reliance on wild fruits. Um, and so some of the other challenges that um, um, Skrika um, sought to address uh, included a limited livelihood options, which resulted in, in increased poverty for the vulnerable communities. Uh, the communities would get cut off uh, due to flooding, uh, lack of water resources uh, for drinking and irrigation due to drought, 
uh, lack of access to markets and services for these communities, uh, low private sector participation in climate change response, as well as um, weak institutional capacity to manage climate change. What was this project now specifically? Uh, how did it help in terms of these communities? The project developmental objective is to strengthen the adaptive capacity of rural communities to better respond to current climate variability and long-term consequences of climate change in the Kafir sub-basin. And um, so Skrika um, is implemented across 11 districts um, in three provinces of Zambia, uh, being the southern and central part and partly Lusaka. So in central province, uh, we have four districts where we are implementing Skrika, uh, Chiwombo, Itejtej, Mumba, and uh, Shibuyunji, with Lusaka province having uh, Kafiwa district after realigning uh, Shibuyunji to central province. And then southern province has six districts, Mazabuka, Monze, Pemba, Choma, Kalomo, and Namwala. Mm -hmm. And so, um, in each of the districts in the three provinces, there were three wards, selected wards, where we have been piloting. And um, in piloting Squeaker project, we have three components, with component one looking at community-driven adaptation, uh, participatory adaptation, where Squeaker supported communities, identified climate change interventions, that they needed to implement through a demand-driven or what is commonly known as bottom-up approach. And in this case, communities have been helped to diversify their livelihoods to ensure that they have food security and multiple, multiple um, streams of income. And the support has been in form of um, water infrastructure, such as solar-powered boreholes, and um, to enable communities undertake government gardening activities. And um, even in the midst of droughts or off-run season, they are able to do their hot culture production. And then um, they have also been supported with um, a livestock infrastructure for small ruminants or village chicken, the resilient type of um, livestock that they can easily manage even in the face of uh, climate change. Um, and with the provision of water, they are even able to engage in aquaculture, fish farming um, at that level. So the idea is for the communities to multiply what they are given in order for them to have enough food for their families mm -hmm. and to sell the excess and be able to raise an income. Mm. Yes. Yeah, so, this has been done with um, the help of government line ministries uh, in, um, from agriculture, forestry, fisheries, livestock, and even commerce, trade, and industry um, that came on board to train, help train the communities in terms of um, micro irrigation, for instance, or culture production as a business, uh, goat rearing and especially conservation agriculture, um, agroforestry, 
um, and, and, and the use of animal manure for soil enrichment, just to help them um, have this uh, shift of mindset from the business as usual kind of agriculture, which is rainfall dependent, to that of an agribusiness uh, kind of production, um, where which can continue, which should continue even outside the rain season, and this enables uh, them having alternative sources of livelihood, um, even when they have crop failure as a result of floods or drought during rain season, but they are able to bounce back. And this is where the resilience really comes in. Mm. Yeah. All right. And how many people are involved in this particular project? We have um, had about 272,850 mm. beneficiaries that have participated in this project, mm. where we have supported them um, with uh, 1,386 community sub-projects. And these are cutting across the water infrastructure I talked about, so, uh, boreholes, uh, livestock infrastructure, drinking troughs, um, such kind of fish ponds, such kind of infrastructure, mm. as well as soft adaptation. Yeah. What do you say soft adaptation? Side of things. Soft adaptation simply means um, when, for instance, the community is supported with um, a structure like a goat structure, which is mm. a, a goat crowd or goat housing, an improved version. The soft adaptation aspect is now the actual goats, which is like um, like for seed, maybe a certain number of females, for instance, eight females and one male, um, which acts as seed, which they should now remain multiplying as a goat rearing project. Mm. If, for instance, this, the community was supported with the solar powered boho, the soft adaptation aspect is the provision of seeds for them, the farming inputs, um, to be able to now grow vegetables if they are going, growing vegetables or any other activities. So the infrastructure uh, aspect is, is referred to hard, hard adaptation support or hard adaptation project. And when we say soft, then we mean the, the, the actual implementation of uh, the goat rearing or chicken rearing or gardening activities. Mm. Okay. I hope that helps distinguish, yeah. yes. Absolutely. What are the most, if you say, you look at how the Kafue area basin was and basically the, the, the communities that you've worked with, the success, the most like how, how has this project in terms of changed this particular community from what they were before and now? Um, like I mentioned earlier, um, that they were one of the most vulnerable um, communities together with that of uh, the Barose a sub-basin of the Zambezi River Basin. So when you look at the way they, the communities used to live before Skrika project, they were mainly dependent on rainfall, um, rainfall kind of farming systems. And now since this region is vulnerable, either in terms of flooding or drought, so when they have crop failure, uh, then they would resort to 
meal, um, reducing their meal portions or maybe just having a meal once a day or even in, in case where they don't even have a meal, a decent meal, they would reduce and um, have only vegetable as, as, as accompaniment to their meal. Uh, without um, proteins or other sources of nutrition. Or if at all there's nothing, then they would resort to wild fruits or wild tubers. So then until maybe there's either government relief, food, or some other help. But now with this support, um, in case there's crop failure, the communities have other options other alternative sources of income um, where they can engage using irrigation from the uh, water points, the solar powered uh, water boreholes. Uh, they can be able to still uh, do agriculture activities even outside the rainfall. So this brings in like an extra source of income apart from depending on the rainfall season and meaning that they'll be productive throughout the year and not just wait for the rain season. So you can see that there is an increased source of income and options and even at their own nutrition, um, household nutrition needs, as well as selling off the excess and be able to raise an income and send their children to school. So those that would not send their children to school and are now able to send children to school because they have an extra income or even buy other farming inputs. Um, others who are even like more um, outgoing, they even go ahead and uh, extend businesses and just become innovative and become business uh, persons. Um, we have seen some champions emerging in these uh, communities. And so they give testimonies that they are happy. The women used to walk so many kilometers in the past to go and look for water, water to drink. And mm -hmm. so this took away their time yeah, from tending to their households and even um, other uh, aspects in their households suffered because of the, the lack of water previously. But now they have water in their backyards and they can even engage in other productive activities from the same water, uh, unlike in the past. So this has changed a lot in terms of uh, the social aspect, the economic, nutrition, health-wise, and a number of benefits uh, that they give testimonies for. Thank you, Indy. Now, um, this project was actually implemented or funded under the, the pilot program for climate resilience um, and involved about 40 yes. agencies and organizations in terms of um, uh, multi-stakeholder institution mechanism influence, designing of this particular uh, project. How has uh, this uh, involvement of um, private sector uh, microfinance uh, project, I mean, uh, programs, insurances and commitment communities basically help this participatory adaptation um, helped in terms of creating this particular project and the successes that you've seen on the ground? Okay, so the, um, the strategic program for climate resilience aimed at developing a coordinated uh, climate change um, program in the country. And in order to do this, uh, stakeholder consultations were held 
at different levels, at national level and local levels, with key national government institutions, as well as uh, local government institutions, or the civil society, the private sector organizations, having to identify key stakeholders, uh, that is in terms of uh, directly or indirectly associated with climate change activities and, and programs, mm -hmm. and also identify gaps in uh, implementation of climate change uh, programs that were being implemented at that time. Um, then they further went on to make recommendations for the SPC ARA strategic components to be implemented by the PPCR and also identify areas of collaboration with the different uh, stakeholders. And so based on the identified gaps, the stakeholders then selected um, three uh, SPCR strategic components um, as those most likely to achieve transformational change uh, should the partners' efforts be combined. And so from these um, consultations with stakeholders, it became apparent that areas that needed to be supported were in terms of participatory adaptation, which would address the adaptation challenges at the community level, and then uh, climate resilient infrastructure, which would introduce climate resilient infrastructure investments and also the strategic program support, uh, which would uh, strengthen the institutional um, structure for managing climate change challenges. Mm -hmm. um, it was, yeah, it also um, became very apparent from the stakeholder engagements, especially from the provincial and uh, district stakeholders that um, the project would need the work of a national, I mean, non-governmental organizations, the NGOs that were already working in the Squeaker target area because communities were already familiar with them. And um, since climate change adaptation, like you said in your introduction, was a new concept to these communities, uh, mm -hmm. we needed to use uh, organizations that were already working with the communities to help just um, sensitize them, mobilize them, and unpack this message in a language that they were already used to in working with them at that level. All right. And in terms of the, the, the total funding for the project, how much did the funding for the project receive? Uh, this was um, 38 million US dollars for the whole project. Yeah. So the other uh, Subcomponent, very important subcomponent I, I needed to mention mm -hmm. was uh, the bringing on board of the private sector um, um, enterprises uh, that would come and offer, provide um, access to market for the primary producers. Because remember, with the supported boreholes, the farmers are producing vegetables and whatever other produce, but they are in far-flying areas yeah. And so they, we, we facilitated a matching grant facility where the private sector would come up and support them a certain percentage of um, um, funds and they match up with their own so that they now go and off-take, buy off what the farmers are producing out there. 
and uh, then take them to the markets or value add them and then they go into the value addition uh, process. And also the other um, uh, platform that enabled the easy access to market was um, the piloting of um, um, climate resilient roads um, infrastructure to ease access um, to these places in the far-flying area. So we piloted a climate resilient road um, in the region, a total of 247 kilometers that links central province to southern province without traversing through uh, the capital city of Lusaka, thereby providing like a shorter route to the other markets from the farmers that are producing in the uh, Skrika regions. Mm. That means that these farmers, um, they have, when they, they have, they grow these particular products that they are actually growing, then they have an assured market. Exactly. Okay. And in terms of policies, one of the things that is very important is, is actually enabling low end policies in terms of regulations uh, put in place, of, of mm -hmm. course, by the government and to assure that what is um, in the, the, the policies are in tandem with actually what is happening on the ground is in tandem with actually the policies of the country. What would you say in terms of political will that um, in terms of uh, Zambia that uh, that really was critical and how um, how was political will and, and, and the enabling laws and policies were uh, that actually helped this particular project? So I'll start with, um, in 2006, um, Zambia uh, released its vision 2030 to achieve a middle income status. Um, it became apparent to governments soon after that, um, that climate change um, actually posed a huge threat to achieving the middle income status. And so the National Adaptation uh, Plan of Action on Climate Change, the NAPA, was formulated to enable that um, the effects, the effective identification of national climate change vulnerabilities and uh, adaptation needs um, are, are ensured. And uh, soon after that, um, Zambia submitted a request to become a PPCR pilot country. Um, so the government has been very determined in ensuring that uh, implementation of um, uh, initiatives such as the Squeaker project is successful, there is political will because they are um, at the core of it all. And um, so again, in 2016, the country developed its um, national policy on climate change, which recognized uh, the potential threats posed by climate change and provided a framework for coordinating climate change uh, programs. And then, um, of course, thereafter, the seventh National Development Plan of 2017 to 2021 um, was released, and it now mainstreamed climate change adaptation and mitigation measures. So the mainstreaming of um, climate change in the seventh National Development Plan actually made it possible for Skrika, uh, the Skrika project to in turn support uh, mainstreaming of climate change in district development plans uh, for all the 11 um, districts in which Skrika project is implemented. And in this process, the district officials were trained and in undertaking risk assessment 
assessment, climate risk assessment at district level, at local level, and also assist um, um, in conjunction with the NGOs, assist the communities at that lowest level to uh, conduct risk assessment, as well as fill out interventions that needed to be done for their communities in terms of climate change. So this is um, the, the, the greatest framework um, that has come from the government support and the political will is the, the provision of the decentralization framework upon which Skrika project is implemented. Uh, from the national level, cascading down to the provincial, down to district, and down to the ward level, and, and until reaching down to the communities mm. with the involvement of everyone, yes, along the, the framework. All right. I was asking you to share some lessons that are actually um, from this, but uh, from the Skrika project that uh, you'd say like other African countries can actually learn from you, if both policy-wise, uh, regulatory and, and different incentives in, that can actually make a locally-led actions, uh, adaptation actions, a success. The lessons learned are that uh, to have successful locally-led actions, uh, governments need to put in place enabling environments such as um, the decentralization policy I'm from talking about. Mm -hmm. um, this is in order to bring decision-making closer to the citizenry. Um, this way, uh, the bottom-up approach can easily be implemented because um, the communities uh, feel are given this opportunity, this space to participate in the decision-making, and then they'll feel part of the process and actually there will be ownership of whatever interventions that are introduced in such communities because they will not treat um, whatever support is taken to them as foreign, but they will feel as having been part of it because they were there from problem identification up to identification of solution that is suitable for them. And then they will see the benefits actually um, realizing to them. And also the bringing on board of private sector is critical because no matter how much support you give the communities, yes, they, they become successful, they produce, but then if there's no one to offtake or value add what they are producing, it may end up going to waste. And then it defeats the whole purpose of them. Yeah. So bring on board the private sector to come and provide access to market or value addition helps uh, in this um, 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 adaptation journey, as well as uh, working with NGOs actually worked very well um, when it comes to community mobilization, sensitization, and trainings and uh, such kind of activities um, because uh, these are used to working with them and uh, they know them and um, they are very critical partners. Um, and so um, it has been a very important lesson learned that if you are looking at um, locally led actions, uh, mm -hmm. these um, three factors I have highlighted are critical. And of course, access uh, roads because even if you have the private sector and you have the primary producer, but if the private sector cannot reach the producers, the farmers, because of a road 
bad road network or a disconnected road, then that transaction will not take place. So these are the critical factors that um, are very important um, for governments to take into consideration when you're working on local-led actions. Yeah. Okay, Andy, thank you so, so much. Um, Your final word for us to finalize this conversation. Uh, I would just like to say that thank you very much for having me. And um, I appreciate uh, you hosting us to talk about um, um, climate change issues, especially issues that are dealing with uh, stakeholder engagement, stakeholder involvement, and the communities at the lowest um, level of participation. uh, Because climate change issues are sometimes talked about at that highly scientific level at mm. international platforms. So it helps to share experiences from down there at the bottom, just so that um, people can appreciate that um, there are so many uh, different levels, different players, dynamics, and for the vulnerable communities to really participate and become resilient, uh, they need to be taken on board as active partners, uh, active action uh, leading uh, partners in the climate change space. If there's Mm -hmm. ownership and sustainability that needs to be achieved. Absolutely. So thank you very much. You're most welcome, Indy. Thank you so much too for finding time. Thank you. Engineer Dinala telling us how involving all stakeholders on the ground has helped create resilience along the Kafue Basin in Zambia. The project nearly comes to an end and was administered by the African Development Bank. Now, in the beginning, I mentioned that the Kafue Basin project was funded by the Strategic Climate Fund under the Climate Investment Funds. Now, I'm joined by Dora Nusa Kujo, the Senior Operations Officer managing the Climate Investment Fund's stakeholder engagement portfolio, who tells us why engaging all stakeholders is critical under CIV's funding mechanism. My name is Dora Nsua Kujo. I'm a Senior Operations Officer and I manage the Climate Investment Funds or the CIVS Stakeholder Engagement Portfolio. Um, you may know that the CIVS was formed in 2008 in the midst of the global food, fuel and financial crisis. A group of G8 leaders had visualized a fast-moving multilateral response to address climate change. They saw the need to drive low-carbon, climate-resilient growth trajectories. And currently, with 8.3 billion having leveraged over 53 billion in financing and supporting over 300 interventions in 72 countries, the CIFS design, implementation, and overall business model continues to hinge on transparency, inclusivity, and for that matter, social inclusion, and uh, a participatory approach to decisions around climate finance. And of course, I believe that these are very critical to ensuring skilled up predictable financing that would address national and local um, climate priorities. Um, Permit me to touch on three key um, areas which demonstrate or that um, showcases how the CIFS implements stakeholder engagement in its um, business model. Um, As I have um, tried to allude to, stakeholder engagement literally, or in layman's terms, I would frame it as 
providing that enabling environment or that space for myriad of voices, relevant voices for that matter, to contribute substantively to decisions around climate finance and in our space, the climate, fi um, climate investment funds, to contribute to decisions around climate finance. And in the SIFT, we identify three key tiers. The first one is at the governance level. The governance level where um, contributor and recipient countries convene, and for that matter, to make decisions on policy and operations of, on climate finance, the SIFT's finance. Very happy that the SIFT invests in supporting about 40 non-state actors, and for that matter, civil society, or let me say um, non-governmental organizations, private sector, indigenous peoples, or local communities to bring the voices of their respective constituencies to bear on decisions around use and devolution of climate funds. So that saves actually puts resources, puts attention, not just to one, two, but to a representative sample of observers um, of non-state actors from across these constituencies with active voices to contribute to decisions around um, um, the SIFS um, resources. I think uh, that has been um, well recognized. The second um, tier is at the regional national level where partnership forums provide space for um, climate fund um, stakeholders from across the sub-region to convene, to share knowledge, to um, cross-fertilize, and for that matter, to enhance ability for um, um, slow paces, to pick pace, and to learn um, different approaches to uh, meeting climate and development needs using SIFS resources. And at the national level, if I may give one particular example, for example, in Cambodia, the Climate Investment Fund had supported um, an NGO to hold a national forum where different players, for that matter, um, government representatives, multilateral development banks, indigenous people, local communities, private sector, tertiary institutions, youth leaders had convened to learn about the SIFS business and to identify areas for improving use of SIFS resources and improving devolution of SIFS funds at the local level. So these are the, some of the three um, areas where I thought it would be quite useful to understand how the SIFS um, plays out the effectiveness of its stakeholder engagement model. Particularly um, to the question of how the SIFS experiences can influence or inform other climate funds around um, stakeholder engagement. Particularly, the SIFS, although doing quite well in, in enhancing voices of partners in its decisions, the SIFS does not rest on its hours, but has um, brought in independent evaluation teams to assess how it is functioning on the um, on issues around stakeholder engagement at the local communities. And for that matter, in 2019, the CBI was um, um, hired to independently assess or independently evaluate our local stakeholder engagement work. And based on the lessons and experience um, gained from that, we have improved the independence or the transparency um, model used in the selection of observers to our various trust funds and technical committees. And we've also um, improved the space for um, continued capacity support to our observers who are our conduits 
to their to local communities but most importantly serve as objective voices to help shape our business um, going forward the CIF is also ensured to package its lessons and experiences, ensuring that our lessons don't stay only within our walls, but we can share with other funds. And that has been quite useful. We've also identified uh, groups within our broader stakeholder engagement space. And I, um, I found where we need to better improve. For example, within the space of indigenous people and their contribution to um, dialogues on technology-based um, support systems, we had noticed that within a clean technology fund, we could tighten our belt with regards to indigenous people support. And for that matter, we had um, carried out a study that looked at the contribution of um, in, um, traditional knowledge and technologies to climate solutions. This particular study has helped us to unravel spaces and opportunities to understand how indigenous people are contributing substantively to climate actions and identified where we could better learn and for that matter, create the conduit for better engagement with indigenous people. The third point that I wanted to flag is on ensuring um, um, providing platforms for um, improved engagement and we have um, stepped up our game in enhancing youth voices and for that matter um, identifying that youth innovation and how that could even improve the the, the, the CIFS um, programs um, both locally regionally and globally um, I would add here the the um, the CIFS supported stakeholder advisory network on climate finance what we call the sun the sun was launched um, in, during the COP in Morocco, and the objective primarily of the sign is to serve as a convening space for observers, both past and present observers, to um, use this platform to meet, one, to learn, cross-learn from across um, the various funds, and to build capacity, because as you can tell, the observers on the various climate funds provide really substantive contribution to shaping actions on the ground and to improving, monitoring, and for that matter, effective devolution of climate funds. So the Sun currently represents um, observers from the Climate Investment Funds, the Green Climate Funds, the Forest Carbon Partnership Facility, the Global Environment Facility, and to the extent feasible with the hope um, um, of the, um, to extent feasible, the adaptation fund and the the goal here is that while the interest has been to improve knowledge sharing across funds the sun gives the space for observers from across these funds to continue to learn from each other as i've already said but most importantly to provide the space for leapfrogging enhancing the capacity to better serve on the various funds so I believe that the Climate Investment Fund's um, transparency, independent approach to bringing on observers, providing the space for continued learning from our non-state actors, and also identifying the opportunities to better share the safe knowledge as a knowledge bank becomes quite an asset. I believe um, the SIF's, um ongoing programs have offered quite um, substantive ex lessons and experiences, but even more so, the CIF's new businesses um, would provide the space for um, better informing, 
um, better incentivizing interest in non-state actors and for that matter, broader stakeholder group to be more included in a climate action because one cannot do all, but together, I believe that the climate investment funds with the other funds can make significant inroads in climate action. And with that, we wrap up the Financing Change series. Remember, you can also access other episodes on our website, www.africaclimateconversations.com, or listen to us on Spotify, Google, Apple, and every other channel you access your other podcasts. Please write to us using info at africaclimateconversations.com or hit us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Remember, the Financing Change in Africa series was a conversation made possible by a collaboration between the African Development Bank, the Climate Investment Funds, and the Africa Climate Conversations. I will see you next week on Thursday to continue the restoration of the African Dryland series. But until then, Kwaheri, my name is Sophie.